It's January 24th, 2022. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 164 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well. Wherever you are tuning in from around the world, Salam Dustan Aziz. Hello to all of you out there from Toronto, Canada again. Welcome to the final one of our special themed episodes of Rook for these weeks. Hello, Groovy Shaya. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Are you ready to go to space? Yes. <laughs> Today we're focusing on the NASA notables, two very impressive men of Iranian descent, both of them having done outstanding work in the arena of space, technology, and innovation, both vastly successful. First up, an award-winning PhD and NASA star who is well-known across the Iranian diaspora, Dr. Firuz Naderi joins me from Los Angeles. And then the very special NASA project manager who is leading the development of a new lunar crane, Barmaka Talegani, who joins us from Langley, Virginia, for our second feature chat. That's all coming up. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and where you can become a patron or sponsor of our program, rookmedia.com. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We are on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook and see us on social media, switch over to YouTube or Instagram right now at Rook Media. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Persian, check us out on Telegram. All right, let's get to our guests. This is a special themed episode of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is the NASA Notables. first special guest today needs little introduction, especially for Americans and people of Iranian descent around the world. He has spent recent decades managing NASA programs in pursuit of a fundamental question, are we alone in the universe? Dr. Firuz Naderi was born in Iran's city of poets, Shiraz. He completed his elementary education in his hometown, then moved to Tehran for his secondary education. He immigrated to the United States after graduating from high school in the 1970s. Firuz received his doctorate from the University of Southern California in electrical engineering and joined NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1979 and then went on to lead that unit as its director until 2016. On his retirement, NASA actually named an asteroid, Naderi 5515, in his honor. Fidu is referred to the asteroid and said, fortunately, it will never hit the Earth. 
Dr. Nadetti is now cooperating as a counselor with NASA as well as some startups. He is also working as an instructor of the Prospective Leaders Training Center for the Iranian American Association. He is a fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, AIAA, and the recipient of a number of awards, including NASA's Outstanding Leadership Medal, the Space Technology Hall of Fame Medal, and NASA's highest award, the Distinguished Service Medal. He is also a 2005 recipient of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, given for his outstanding contributions that have enriched American society and exemplify its cultural diversity. And he was most recently recognized by the American Astronautical Society, AAS, with the William Randolph Lovelace II Award for Outstanding Contributions to Space Science and Technology. And right now, Dr. Fidus Nadeli joins us from Los Angeles. Hello, sir. Oh, John, thanks for that introduction. It's hard to live up to all that you said, but uh, thank you for your uh, generous uh, introduction. Fears, it's a great honor to have you on this program. I want to ask you a question now that, that is either extremely naive or profound. I'm not sure which you can decide, and, and, and perhaps it's absurd. But given that it has long been the aspiration of humankind to, to learn what kind of life might be out there in the cosmos or on Mars, and I know, I know you've long been a student of this, what will we gain by finding an answer to that age-old question, are we alone in the universe or not? Well, look, uh, the, in the vastness of the universe, uh, and to just give you a quick sense of uh, how large the universe is, uh, you um, are in Toronto. If you go to the nearest lake or nearest beach, and try to pick a sand grain, a single sand grain, out of all the sand grains in the lake, that is, um, let's call that our sun. And, uh, and then continue counting all the sand grains in the local beaches, and then when you're done, uh, everything in so- South America, North America, Europe, in fact, count all the sand grains <laughs> on the beaches on Earth, Okay. And the number of stars, stars being other entities like our sun, is more than all the sand grains in the world. It would seem uh, one way or the other, either we are so uh, blessed uh, among all these sand grains that we uh, alone uh, have developed uh, life uh, here on planet Earth around the sun, or, in fact, you can use the argument that that would be uh, uh, rather um, arrogant of us to even think that, right. that there are many, many more life forms. At any, at any rate, it gives you a context for us being here on Earth. I think that's profound, knowing whether, in fact, we are alone in, in the universe or not. And even though this is not the subject of this discussion because it takes a long time, so I will avoid it, uh, if you look at how life first arose on Earth uh, since it was formed four and a half billion years ago, and how that happened, which is uh, uh, the probability is very, very low, but it did, if you find out, not in any other sand grain, but in our own little sand grain, in our solar system, there was a second place, like Mars, that independent of Earth also developed life. Uh, 
then the probability that the universe is teeming with life would be exponential. So that is one of the reasons we go to Mars. Mm-hmm. But generally, Gian, I, I think our young people are always inspired and seek to go into math and computer science and technology, uh, you know, when there is uh, something inspirational, and you can't deny that space exploration is exponential, is uh, inspirational. Um, and uh, throughout the years, uh, our technology that we use in everyday life, in uh, medicine, uh, in uh, uh, assembly of uh, uh, machines and things like that, in GPS, they have all been helped by the fact that we have developed these technologies right. uh, for space, and years later it has sort of found its way into the normal life. So the people who say, well, what does it mean to me? Even if the philosophical question that we just talked about doesn't get you, uh, then uh, you would give it a nod because it actually helps your life here on Earth. Let me come back to that because that's a that in terms of funding, that's a big question too. But uh, first of all, by the way, just parenthetically, I, uh, listening to you, you're so into this. <laughs> I know you're technically retired from NASA, but but you're kind of like Michael Jordan. You you retire, but then you come back. I mean, Peter's not there. Now he seems to have never really left NASA, and space exploration never really leaves Firu. Would that be correct? Yeah, it goes in uh, your blood. Uh, first of all, you know, I have uh, stepped down from my full-time duty at NASA. I have not retired. You can't just turn the switch off and retire. So I'm still pretty active, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, in consulting in uh, back to NASA and also with early-stage startups. So I'm still fairly active. And uh, uh, and yes, uh, yeah, it's uh, you're addicted to it. Why? It what? Easy. What is that? Can you put it into words? What's the drug that is uh, space exploration for you? Um, you know, I coach uh, a number of uh, young uh, Iranian students, um, actually uh, international, not only Iranian, um, that. Uh, they always ask me, you know, we want to follow in your footsteps and, you know, what propelled you ahead. There is only one thing I can think of over and above everything else, and that is curiosity. I think that is what drives us, the, uh, the yearning to know what's around the bend, to go around the corner and see what's around the bend. I think that propels um, everybody. And uh, so what uh, keeps me engaged is that there is so much to know. And I'm, you know, I've been, I'm so naturally curious uh, that uh, you always try to stay um, up to date. And that's what drives you. Hmm. It's interesting that you should use the word curiosity. Let, let me stick with the Mars missions for another couple of minutes. You were directly involved with the well-known Curiosity mission a rover that is currently on Mars. It's doing its job. And on the NASA science website, it says that the ultimate goal of the curiosity is human exploration of Mars. Uh, What would that look like? How could it benefit us and and the universe? What does human exploration on or of Mars look like? 
Well, uh, you know, go back to 50, uh, you know, 15th century. Uh, Europe was doing well. Portugal was doing well. Uh, the known universe was known to them. And uh, had they not been curious to try to find out what else is there, uh, you know, they would have never crossed the oceans and tried to go to America. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, so it is uh, within us, you know, it is part of our uh, human's DNA that wants to explore. And, uh, and it, through that exploration, as I explained earlier, uh, their uh, life uh, enriches. So uh, the idea of uh, trying to get further and further out in the universe uh, you know, stems from that. Now, there are some people who say, well, if you're going to Mars because you think someday Earth would be uninhabitable and, uh, you know, you're going to Mars so you can have a second beachhead, uh, and that's uh, um, foolhardy. Why don't you take care of Earth? Why are you destroying Earth so that you need to go to some place? That's never the argument. Of course we should take care of Earth first. Uh, that's the only life, uh, the only uh, home that we know. Mm. So Mars is not to be a substitute for Earth. So it is stems uh, first and foremost out of curiosity to push further into the uh, uh, universe. But, you know, if uh, we are foolish enough to someday uh, make uh, uh, Earth uninhabitable, then it would give us another option. Steve Hawking uh, said that uh, if within 1,000 years from now uh, humans have not found another place uh, which they can call, uh, which, which they can live on aside from Earth, in that we will go extinct. Let me ask the question directly. We are sitting in the middle. I mean, you've touched on this a couple of times, but I want to give you the chance to really respond to it. We're sitting in the middle of a global pandemic where yeah. resources can be scarce, economies are tumbling. You know, at the height of the U.S.-Soviet space race, there there yeah. seemed to be this great appetite for spending when it came to space exploration. What is the case you would make today for uh, someone who says, why, why is my nation putting sure. resources into a Mars mission versus healthcare or the environment? Sure. If you take a dollar of federal government and then take a penny, 100 of it, uh, out of that dollar, and then cut it in half, and then cut that in half, that's the budget of NASA. And so if you are, in fact, uh, hard up for... Uh, balancing the budget relative to other urgencies, I would submit to you that the war that America had with Iraq, what, 15, years, uh, 15 16 years ago, right. that would fund NASA for 70 years. Hmm. So I think it would be misguided, given all the benefits that I cited, to go after that quarter of one penny, try to save money to fund Social Security or Medicare, uh, there are other places where I think we are spending foolishly that if, in fact, you want to rebalance your priorities, that's where to look. Uh, it is not to gut NASA. You, you talked about what people get wrong in terms of the budget uh, when it comes to, to NASA. What, what are myths that people have about NASA? What do people get wrong about this institution? 
It depends. Uh, it, I mean, there are uh, conspiracy theorists abound. Uh, you know, there are people who think that we know a lot. We've been in contact with aliens, and and uh, <laughs> uh, we are hiding that from the public. Wait, and, that's and so not forth. true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let me clarify and and say no. That and okay. that is uh, right. not true. And the uh, second thing is that, uh, you know, we uh, faked the uh, moon landing, you know, we, that was all done in Hollywood studios, and we faked it, and then no matter how many times you explain it to them, they still come back to it. So uh, there are conspiracy theories which I think do not want to learn, and uh, I have stopped uh, uh, wasting my breath uh, talking to them. <laughs> if you, I'm, I, I want to shift from space into identity, but just before I do that, if you could set a mission goal for exploration without any concern for budgetary requirements or political support, what would that goal be? Aside from uh, human travel, which uh, I think uh, to Mars, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Elon Musk's uh, bravado notwithstanding, I mean, at one time he said, you know, we're going to go there in 2018, and, <laughs> uh, then it's 2024, I don't think that's going to happen. I think sometimes between 2030, few years after that, um, that's a possibility. In fact, just before I left NASA, with the help of two colleagues, uh, we laid out a plan uh, to, in fact, enable, uh, you know, such a mission. And knowing, you know, just what you talked about, about NASA budget, knowing that we can never go back to early uh, 60s with the Cold War and, uh, you know, b budget was uh, no issue, we said, what if NASA budget never grows beyond what it is right now, just grows with inflation? How long will it take? And how would we uh, sequence things to go to Mars? And it turned out to be uh, mid-2030s. Now, uh, on uh, is a bit more ambitious, which I think is good. I think NASA is getting too conservative. I think it needs somebody uh, from the private sector to sort of push NASA. So I think SpaceX is really not in competition with NASA, but I think it is a nice compliment. Uh, they may bring it uh, forward a little bit, but it is not in the next few years but we'll, we'll go uh, eventually. So human to Mars is one. And the second one of my favorite is that we believe that if there is currently uh, any kind of biology elsewhere in our solar system, the probability is the highest for a moon of Jupiter. You know, Jupiter... Uh, and like us that have only one moon, Jupiter has like 67, 68 moons. And one of them, Europa, so has a vast ocean which is cocooned inside uh, a shell of 20 or so kilometer ice. We believe that all the conditions for emergence of life uh, is there for Europa. And be able to find that out, I, I think, would be another great thing. And was the last mission that I worked on before I left NASA. You were a kid from Shiraz who had a 
great facility for math and science, as the story goes. You came to America as a, as a young man in the late 70s. Uh, much of your story has been told elsewhere, and there is a great deal of, of pride in our diaspora that an Iranian has ascended to the celestial heights that you have. Let me ask a, a question this way. Is there anything about being from the East, growing up there, being Iranian, that you think helped your perspective on life and space as you were coming up in NASA? Yeah, no, not exactly the way you asked it. Um, uh, first of all, to clarify, and I uh, do not say with any uh, false sense of uh, uh, being humble, there are so many, particularly among the young generation of Iranian Americans that uh, that come here, or Iranian students that come here, that I see so much, so much smarter than I, uh, that uh, I was, uh, you know, at their age, uh, is that no, I was not particularly blessed, uh, you know, uh, being. Uh, uh, any more advanced than anybody else. Uh, so probably it was hard work, curiosity, and good luck that allowed me to get to where I am. Uh, so it is eminently possible for um, everybody else. And I think, in fact, uh, such a mistake for America, and kudos to Canada, that uh, has uh, kept the doors open for Iranian students coming <clears throat> here to further their education. And one way or the other, you know, I, I said this thing uh, in an interview that it is a win-win for America. Either they come and, like myself, decide to stay in this country and get absorbed in this society, which, uh, which is good, or, in fact, they go back to their country with, a, with empathy, for America and change the perception yes. of the home country about America. Yes. To close the doors on Iranian students, which get accepted uh, disproportionately at uh, you know uh, universities like Stanford and MITs and Caltech, it's just so short-sighted by the current administration that uh, it just, uh, you know, frankly infuriates me. What about that, that notion of hard work that you talk about, though? And not to romanticize the notion of immigrants uh, being hardworking, et cetera, but do you think that there was an element to that, that you outworked uh, those around you because uh, of uh, coming from somewhere else and needing to work that much harder, uh, given the language tools and all the, and, and, uh, the pedagogical approach and having to adapt to everything in, in the States? No, I think the classical picture that we have of the immigrants that try harder um, uh, you know, it, it's uh, really is there. There, there is a, you may uh, know him, uh, Omide Kurdistani. He sure. was, yeah. um, uh, you know, the 10th employee at Google and now is the executive chairman at Twitter. He gave a commencement speech at, uh, at the university. And there's something that he said he stuck with me. You know, he came here as a 14-year-old with uh, his uh, single mom. And uh, he talked about how he got ahead, given the mindset that you're talking about. Uh, and, you know, at the beginning, you are not native, your English, if you're like in Canada or U.S., is not good enough. And uh, you um, come from a different culture, you have to adapt. All of that makes you work harder. So, but what he said that stuck with me 
was that he said that now, you know, years, 50 years later, now that I'm well assimilated in the American culture, one thing that I tell all immigrants, that after you succeed, don't lose the mindset of an immigrant. Keep that with you. Even though you don't face the same challenges as you did when you first came here, and that you know mindset that he talked about, uh, you know, uh, says everything. And do you have that mindset? I've always kept it. I think, yeah, I've always. Uh, I'm very competitive, uh, a- anyways. But uh, yes, I've kept that mindset. Tell me about you know on uh, leaping off that, uh, jumping off that very point. Tell me about being a guy who has worn the emblem of, one might say, the most American of institutions on your sleeve, NASA, but who also regularly and proudly identifies as Iranian. How do those two nations coexist in you? Ah, you know, I I refer to that as the curse and the blessing of having two countries. Uh, So it it, it is difficult. Uh, You know, I... You talked a little bit about my history, uh, uh, my adult life, and I call my adult life beyond my high school years. And high school years, you know, I went to a a boarding Catholic uh, high school in Tehran, and so I was sort of shielded from the society. So even when I left Iran at 18, I had not really grown up all that much uh, in the outside world of, uh, uh, you know, Iran society. But beyond that, uh, now I've spent 95% of my life in in America. Adult life. Adult life. Right. And uh, I feel uh, in a very strong uh, way that I owe a uh, sense of gratitude uh, to two countries, uh, one in which I was born and the other one which enabled the rest of my life. Uh, and I cannot differentiate. Uh, you know, when people say, well, you know, are you really an Iranian or an American? Mm. And uh, my response has always been, you know, once you break an egg into a bowl and then steer it, it is very hard to separate the uh, <laughs> the yolk from the white, right. and that is uh, most uh, pe- people who have immigrated and have been here for a long time. So I, you know, have a sense of belonging to both. And when some people, as you know, maybe we'll get to talk about it, um, particularly in this uh, sensitive times in American history and election coming up, uh, they talk about you know, you need to vote this way or the other way. It's your duty to uh, Iran and forget about any sense of duty at the have uh, to America because, after all, you're Iranian. And I said, no, I'm not Iranian. I'm Iranian-American. Right. It, the both go together. I have duties uh, and sense of loyalty to Iran and sense of loyalty to America. Uh, and uh, so I'm not going to choose. I mean, no matter how much you try to press me and shame, you know, fr- frankly, in uh, uh, social media, they try to shame you into taking sides yes. uh, between your two identities. Yes. And I just refuse to do it. Uh, those misguided people who insist, uh, let them live their lives. But uh, most of the people that I know here, 
they feel obligations to both countries. And there are times where there were people who were advocating that America should bomb Iran, uh, you know, to get rid of the current regime, which, by the way, uh, not to politicize your uh, show, I'm very much against. Uh, but I, you know, I was very much against it. Uh, you, you know, you don't bomb a nation in order to get rid of uh, the mullahs. It's easy for me to say, sitting in Los Angeles, I know that the bomb will not drop on my head, uh, to say, yeah, at, at any cost, by any means, get these people out, bomb, so two million people die, so what? These people, are, I, I, no, I can't say that. And then here, when people ask me to vote one way or the other, uh, you know, forgetting that America has uh, environmental issue, medical issue, race issue, um, social security issues, and dozens of issues on which when Americans go to poll and vote, they should keep it forefront in their mind. I'm not going to sacrifice all of that um, because some people are thinking, uh, no, I mean, you should only look at the next election through the lens of Iran, which I refuse to do. Okay, you've given me a treasure chest of talking points in that one answer that that I want to deconstruct and take one at a time. We'll get to the politics, uh, but first, a, a couple of statements. First of all, I'm on to you. I knew you were going to, I suspected you might use your egg analogy, uh, which I love, but I do want to say sometimes people still choose to separate the egg, even though it naturally mixes in the bowl. That still exists. To, to extend the metaphor perhaps further than you wish to. Um, and and the other thing I was going to say is uh, I'm not sure if it matters. You know, you did the percentage on how long you've been here and how long you've been in Iran. To a certain extent, Peter's John, I don't know if that actually even matters because I didn't spend my life first, first half of my life in Iran, but I still feel that duality and that incredible uh, identity and that devotion to two nations, in my case, Canada and, and, the, and Iran, even the UK, where I spent my early years. And, and I know cousins of mine or friends who've come very recently in the last two or three years or five years and feel that same devotion to, to their new country as, uh, as, as you do, having been here for a few decades. So it's almost not about the amount of time spent, but this preternatural, this, um, this, this bigger than geography feeling that you, we develop towards the, uh, a duality of cultures. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you, you you notice that I did not say I did not weigh my allegiances based on the number of years. I said ninety five percent adult life here right. and so forth. Right. So uh, no, I I think the loyalty and a sense of belonging that you have to do the two countries are not uh, weighed by number of years that you have spent in either places. Uh, no, I was born there. They're, when they're in my roots, my parents, my history, uh, uh, it's all rooted in Iran. Uh, whether I was there for 18 years or 1,800 years, uh, that's, that's there. So all I'm saying, it is unreasonable for people who have not experienced this duality to question your loyalty towards one versus the other. Right. It only the people who have lived this life and they are deeply connected to uh, two cultures, they know what I'm talking about. They know the 
uh, sense of belonging and loyalty that they have towards both, uh, which is, uh, you know, I, I don't uh, ascribe an index to it. I mean, 60% here, 40% there, it's not that. I just give you a factual data and how much of my life has been, uh, you know, in the I two countries. You. But America is where I got educated. It's where I got the opportunity to work, as you said, in one of the most American of Americans institutions. So it gave me all of that. I owe it. I owe it to that culture. I love that culture. And I love my home country, and I don't see any contradictions in those. Even within the loyalty, as you know, there's, there isn't always unity. And uh, I want to ask you about our global Iranian community. I know you've said you're uncomfortable, by the way, with any kind of hero worship. And again, you've demonstrated your modesty already in this interview. But, but you are one of the most prominent names and voices in our diaspora. And you've talked about seeing how other communities help each other and their home base, if you will. Jewish Americans say, helping out other Jews and Israel. Uh, and yet, uh, for all of our our wealth and education in the diaspora, the brain trust, as uh, you've called it at times, we, we don't always do that. How frustrated are you by that? And tell me about the delta between pride and collective support in our Iranian community. Yeah, so... Um I, I think, in uh, unfortunately, uh, our uh, country, uh, home country, Iran, has been facing so many on top of uh, what they're suffering under the current regime. There are also, you know, there's been floods and there's been earthquakes, there's been pandemic. And uh, I have seen remarkable uh, coming up together of people trying to raise funds, uh, you know, for these causes, I've been involved in a number of them myself. And even in a more steady state, uh, I'm involved with organizations that try to educate young kids who are bright, but their parents want them to come and go on the street and sell trinkets to bring an additional income home, and therefore they take him out of school. And you go talk, tell the parents, uh, uh, you know, how much this nine-year-old girl brings home? They say, oh, $50. They say, okay, if we give you the $50, would you let her go back to school? You know, and they say yes. And so I'm part of an organization that does that, and there's several, many different organizations and many people who are involved. But also the enmity that's, uh, that stands in uh, between U.S. and Iran doesn't make it easy. I mean, the banks don't transfer money. Right. Uh, you know, it's not easy to send money and, you know, engage in commerce. So within the limitation, unfortunately, and hostility that exists between the two countries, uh, there are people, uh, you, you know, who within the limitation try to, uh, you know, to help Iran. The unity that you talked about, which is lacking, uh, you know, it is... Uh, a vast majority, uh, I, I will hesitate to put a percentage on it, a vast majority of Iranians who live outside of Iran, um, I don't know, some estimates says 7, 8 million uh, people. Uh, in America, the estimate ranges between 1 to 2 million people. Uh, I know Toronto, for example, is, uh, you know, has a very large population of Iranian it's Americans. It's exploded here, absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm, you know, don't uh, force me to bring proof. It's my sense that the majority do not like, do not approve of the current regime in Iran, and they want it gone. Not modified, but gone. Uh, and they want a, uh, a secular democracy in place of it. But, now back to your unity question, they cannot agree what form that secular democracy should take, and worse than that. And I face it all the time. It is not sufficient that you're against that regime. They want you to be against the, in, uh, that regime in a way that they are against that regime, to fall behind their line. So that is why 40 years has gone by and nothing has happened, because people cannot unify. I mean, uh, you know, we say that the mullahs are uh, ignorant, and, and you know, I won't cite that notion, certainly. Hmm. But somebody like Khomeini was clever enough, uh, differentiate between being smart and being clever, right, right. clever enough to uh, unify people who, went, who were against the prior uh, monarchy and unite them for his purpose. Now, of course, uh, you know, he betrayed all of them later, but nonetheless was able to unify them. Uh, we lack leadership that's able to uh, unify. Right but why now. are we, sorry to cut you off, but why are we so prone to, you've called it before, the my way or the highway attitude. Why are we so prone to that in the as a global community? Jen, I don't think it is unique to us. I mean, I look at the polarization in American society. Uh, you know, that is here as well. Uh, I don't know. But leaders can either try to unify or they can further divide people. And unfortunately, in the U.S. right now, we have leadership that tries to divide rather than unify. But going back to your uh, point about uh, Iranians, I think we need a charismatic leader that will try to overcome this tendency by the diaspora, certainly outside of Iran. Uh, I, I think people inside Iran in some way are more unified in a way that they want this regime gone by any means possible. But in Amer in uh, outside Iran, we're more engaged uh, trying to pick our favorite government after these guys are gone and willing to fight over that, forgetting about the fact that these guys aren't, haven't exactly packed their suitcases ready to go. Uh, so the first job is try to, to uh, facilitate their departure. And uh, so I, I don't know. I think a, a, a charismatic leader could help uh, reason uh, with the different factions and try to unify them. But I just don't see it right now on the horizon. You've made an interesting decision in recent years. Um, I mean, while you were serving completely at NASA uh, up until 2016, you, you stayed quite clear of politics. Um, 
In, in the last few years, you've become quite vocal in expressing, for example, uh, your dismay at the political situation in Iran uh, and in the United States with uh, Donald Trump as well. You've pulled no punches. Um, I want to get to the kind of reaction you've received from that. But first, tell me about that decision, because it feels like you would need to have known that this is uh, this is going to be a minefield to start opening up in terms of uh, being open about your political feelings. Tell me about making that decision. Yeah, Jian, the trigger point was a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, I was so engrossed uh, in my professional life, and the social media wasn't what it is today, and that I sort of steered clear of politics uh, until 2009. 2009, when the Green Movement happened, and because of the social media, I saw how the young people uh, with nothing more than T-shirts and a rock to protect them were getting massacred. Uh, you know, it just uh, awakened something in me. And I started uh, getting a lot of messages because now social media shrunk the world, so I was in contact with young people in Iran. Uh, why don't you say anything? Why don't you take a position? And at that time, I heavily aligned myself with what uh, came to be known as the Green Movement without ever uh, mentioning uh, who are the Agaye Karubi, Agaye, who was the other guy, Musavi. Uh, without ever mentioning, because my support was not for them. My support was for the fight of the Iranian people for democracy. So I aligned myself with the Green Movement. And that sort of started that 2009, so it's been sort of 11 years that got engaged in uh, political discourse. And then later, uh, you know, I did make what, what I look back right now, uh, in retrospect, uh, probably not the right thing to do, is that uh, in the last election, uh, I was so intent basically uh, through urging of uh, friends and family in Iran that said if uh, Raisi becomes uh, president, our life would be even more miserable than it is today, that, uh, you know, he should not become president. And for me, it was very obvious. If you don't vote, basically, uh, you guarantee that he would become, because he was the uh, elected, selected candidate of the Rahbar, that he would become so I urge people to vote. So I've gotten a lot of backlash on that one. You know, how could you be against the regime but still urging people to vote? Uh, because, uh, as we can see, Rouhani has proved yet again that there is no dif- differentiation between these Ahons. They're all the same. And uh, how can you have done that? Uh, and so once again... Uh, I was, uh, you know, in favor of uh, people's lives not getting even worse than what it is today. But apparently it has made no difference. And that has sort of solidified my current position that this whole regime in its entirety, this whole apparatus in all factions, whether Eslav Talab, whether it is uh, whatever they they call the other, Usul Gara or whatever else, that they entire thing needs to be dismantled and replaced by a secular democracy. But uh, if you have time to talk about it, there is another thing, unfortunately, aside from our disunity, another thing which prevents us 
from finally waking up from this nightmare. And that is something which has been in our Iranian DNA for now, uh, you know, a couple of centuries, uh, not unique to current time. And that is that we believe unless somebody else wants it, some other force outside of Iran, be it, uh, and in different times it has changed, be it China, be it Russia, be it England, being America, unless they wish it, nothing will change in Iran. So we're always are looking for a savior, which never comes. And uh, so we really, if we are to wake up from this nightmare, we really need two things to happen. One is the unity that you talked about before, uh, all uh, pulling in the same direction. And the second thing is stop looking for this you know, it's the same thing as people uh, in Iran who have this imam, apparently, which is down at the bottom of a well, and they're waiting for him to come out and spread joy and peace around the world. It's the same thing. Uh, it's the same superstition that the religious people have when they are waiting for, whether it be Trump or be anybody else, to come and liberate Iran which will never happen. So without these two, to be believing in your own will and um, ability to make change and without uniting, uh, you know, they've been around for 40 years, they'll stay around another 40. Fears, tell me about the backlash and, and how it affects you. They, the uh, you know one thing that we do have trouble with in in our in our community in our diaspora and we've we've touched on it many many times on this show already um, is just sitting across from each other and, and talking even if we have profoundly different opinions about how the regime must change or how we, how that change should be prosecuted etc. It's a difficult. Benafshehlari was uh, on this program and she said, yeah. "Look, the definition of democracy is just let's sit and actually talk to each other," but. Um, yeah. For a number of reasons, some of which you've cited, there's it, it, tensions are high and people's opinions are that my way of the highway uh, position that does sometimes prevail. It prevails depending on which guest we have on per, uh, each week. We're, we're labeled one show or another, sometimes completely yeah, contradicting yeah. each other. So you were this guy for many years, I can only assume, who was the the NASA guy that everybody in the global community, Iranian community, loved and adored. And then all of a sudden, as you start taking opinions, uh, political opinions, be they about Iran or be they about Donald Trump, etc., um, you start hearing from people. What what has that been like for you? Uh, so, Jian, first of all, you have to, uh, you know, you cannot um, step into the political arena without developing a thicker skin. I was deeply hurt. Uh, right, partially because of what you said, I was not used to. Uh, maybe I was spoiled by um, the love and respect that I had received. Uh, many of which, by the way, was exaggerated and and deserved, I'm sure. But uh, but the assault and how vicious it was uh, caught me by uh, by surprise. And this labeling that you just, that is the, uh, the sickness right now in um, our diaspora. Uh, it is to 
Uh, and by the way, uh, you know, the social media is a two-edged sword. It, it allows a lot of opinions to be aired, but also it allows very easily, without impunity, without uh, with impunity, to label people. Yep. Okay, so people come and you say, you know, Firuzin Adiri, uh, uh, a, uh, a stooge of uh, of the Jomhuri Islami. We just on the face of it. Would sound stupid. Anyone who hasn't gone back to Iran for even when my mom passed away, I couldn't go back to Iran, and I have been warned that uh, all my communications is being monitored by Jomhuri Islami, and every fiber of my body is uh, rebels against this regime. Uh, you know, but nonetheless, I mean, it doesn't cost anything. You just come and you say, uh, "He is." He is a stooge of the Islamic Republic. Or pick an institution that allegedly uh, is uh, uh, a storefront for them, uh, the uh, NIAC, uh, which uh, I don't have any independent way of uh, uh, knowing uh, whether they are or not. But uh, without any uh, proof, evidence, you know, you're engaged in NIAC, you are part of NIAC, you're on the board of NIAC, which I've never, ever been. You, you deny it maybe once or twice or three times, and then you uh, figure it's useless. You know, it's trying to stick your finger, you know, in a hole that's gushing water. You, you give up. But nonetheless, I still look across the three platforms where I am, Facebook, Instagram, and, and Twitter, the percentage of people who come and sling mud relative to other people who still, uh, you know, they say, stick with it, please be our voice, speak, you know, don't mind these people. It's, it's still a small percentage. It's, uh, you know, five or six percentage uh, of the people who come on my platforms, they, uh, you know, yeah, it hurts. It hurts, but, you know, you can't do anything about it, so you don't uh, dwell. And you just hope that rational people uh, would see that that is the case. And the thing with the social media is that you read something without trying to ascertain its validity. You repeat it. Mm. And then somebody else repeated, repeats that. And so when I have confronted some people where I thought they were more educated, because the uneducated ones are very easy to, uh, to spot. They right, always right. Uh, invoke body parts below their belt. <laughs> and uh, so you dismiss those as uh, they, they are in a gutter. Mm. But the people who appear to be more educated, you say, can you show me one evidence what you say, I mean, based on what do you say that? And so we go back and forth and back and forth, and it ends up saying, okay, I apologize. Except I don't want to spend that much time, you know, confronting these people. So by and in large, I try to ignore it and say, you know, and state my opinion and not be bullied by these people right. because... Right. Uh, the more that you respond to them uh, in some way, you elevate them, and they're not worth it. You've been so generous with your time. Let me finish off with a couple of questions that 
our our zoom out questions about what you see uh, and what you have felt that can come in the future this this program at its heart is about we say conversations from to and about the iranian diaspora is about people of iranian descent of course it's for for more than just people of iranian descent but for those of us who are of iranian descent it matters what is happening in iran um we can't let go of that and as you've said in this interview it's been a particularly disastrous year dating back to the the killing of protesters in the streets to the flight 752 to covid uh, it has just been horrendous. Fears, in many interviews, you have expressed your optimism and hope in the younger generations in Iran today. W- where does that hope stem from? I mean, are you in touch with young people in Iran? What, why do you feel so optimistic? Even though it is really uh, increasingly harder and harder uh, to be, but, you know, what I have said, and I think it's it hardly can be argued that when we talk about the wealth of Iran, the assets of Iran, you know, often people talk about uh, the oil and gas energies, and, you know, we are number three, four, whatever it is that we are in the world, and other things, Ali, Javier, what have you. These are not, you know, the real assets of Iran. The assets of Iran, uh, it's the, the young people. And that's the future. That's the tr- that's the treasure. And uh, ultimately, I think if, if something is going to happen, it's going to be because of them. Uh, I think older people are by nature conservative and stay home. And it is young people who are optimistic and idealistic and go and, in fact, um, sacrifice uh, the most valuable thing that they have, which is their life. So I'm optimistic because of Iran's youth. It is educated. It is in touch, uh, you know, because of uh, the uh, social media. And at the end, uh, if um, I hope that Iran will come out of this thing, um, my hope is, you know, it's the young people. Uh, It's not the wealthy person who sitting in Beverly Hills or sitting in Toronto or what have you, or, or uh, Vancouver with uh, ill-gotten wealth, and, uh, and they're not going to do anything. Uh, they took the loot and they run away. Uh, so it is the young people. Uh, that's, uh, if I have optimism, it's because of that. A final question. You've, uh, you've talked about how your experience in space exploration tells you that a unifying principle uh, we can live by is that planet Earth is home to all of us. In other words, whatever else divides us, if we stand above and look back, we all inhabit the Earth as one. It's it's incredibly simple and yet such a profound perspective that we seem to have so much trouble with on this planet. What could we all learn from seeing things from the perspective of outer space? You know, normally I end my lectures with a um, with a, one final slide, uh, which is a side-to-side image of the map of the Middle East, with all the borders and all the uh, you know havoc that's going on there. And the other one is the view of the astronauts when they look back at Earth and they see this beautiful, unified blue marble without any of those artificial lines 
that we have drawn on a map of the earth. And we have found uh, languages and religions and cultures uh, uh, and race, uh, you know, to separate us from each other. Yet, when you look at it from the space, uh, Earth is home to all of these differences. And that's the only home that we have. So I think it is, uh, you know, you were earlier asking about the benefit of space exploration. It is this realization of unity, uh, which I think is another byproduct of the space exploration. And that's the way we ought to view of Earth, uh, view the Earth and view uh, uh, our place in it and not by artificially drawn lines or geographical maps. Fidus Nazri, it's been uh, an, uh, an unquestionable uh, pleasure and an honor to, to get to do this with you. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you, Jean. You're a very good interview and it was easy to talk to you. I hope to see you soon. Merci. Khodafis. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Award-winning scientist and NASA director, Dr. Firuz Nadiri, he joined us from Los Angeles, California today. This is a special themed episode of Rook, the NASA Notables. I'm Gian Gomeshi. We're back to our regular editions of Rook next week, and we continue with new editions of the Contemporary History of Iran every Thursday across our platforms. Uh, for all episodes of anything related to Rook, go to rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com. That's where you can find our back episodes, our guests, our funnies, our videos. Uh, it's all there. And you can also become a patron or sponsor of our program by pressing the support us button, rookmedia.com. Let's get to our second guest. You know, there's, a, there's an old stereotype about every boy growing up wanting to be an astronaut. And of course, that's a generalization, not the truth. But it is true that a lot of kids do dream of being a pilot and maybe even working for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or as it's more simply known, NASA. My next guest is an Iranian-American who parlayed his mechanical engineering and systems engineering degrees into some work with the Army that has led to a strong and long career at NASA as a project manager. In fact, his current position is to develop technologies that can assist NASA to pioneer the future of space exploration. Barbak Talikani was born in Tehran, moved to the United States with his family in the midst of the revolution in 1979. He was 16 at the time. He first moved to Massachusetts, then went on to study at Northeastern and George Washington University. He is a certified project manager and has written for numerous technical publications in the field of structures and materials. As a deputy project manager, Barmack led the development of the Ascent Abort Crew Module and Separation Ring that was attached to the launch abort system and powered by a modified miniature four first-stage rocket 
that was successfully tested in July of 2019. This was part of the NASA Orion project. He currently leads the development of a lunar crane that can assist astronauts in offloading payloads from the lander to lunar surface. I will ask him what all of that means, but first, let me introduce the man. Barmak Talikani joins me from the home of NASA Langley Research Center, Hampton, Virginia today. Hello, sir. Hello, Jian. How are you? Very nice to have you on the program. Thank you for taking some time away from NASA to speak to us. Thank you. It's nice to be here with you. You are working uh, at the most American of institutions. I mean, I can't think, is there a more American brand than NASA? But you've said it's quite diverse in your workplace. And in fact, there are a lot of people of Iranian descent. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the population that works at NASA Langley is very diverse. I don't know if you know, but there are nine other Iranians that are work currently at NASA Langley and doing variety of research and, and helping NASA to reach their goals. So yes, it is a very, very diverse population. So the future of space exploration is actually in the hands of Iranian Americans. Uh, some, yes, that is true. <laughs> it's good to hear <laughs> and it. others, yes. Uh, you, you, you've talked about contributing to um, the future of human existence. If you don't mind me zooming out to begin this interview, uh, 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 the future of human existence, this, this being why working at NASA has been so fundamental for you. You've said at some point this Earth will not be enough. We will have to expand out. Can you talk about what you mean by that and why you value the work uh, NASA is doing and, th and that you're part of? Okay, so let me start by saying that uh, NASA has made major contribution to the world, such as uh, satellites, telecommunications, GPS, remote sensing, and uh, weather satellites that can really look at the Earth and uh, be able to take this imagery and really look at the health of the land on Earth. But as you know, we are a finite planet. So there is resources that we are using and those resources at some point will be depleted. So uh, humans need to find other places within the space to, to be able to either immigrate there or move there so that they can use those resources for their existence. And this is only natural. This is what's going to happen in not in my lifetime, but in short future. So, yeah. You feel, I mean, like, it's it's, a, you feel like it's inevitable that we have it to... It is inevitable. I mean, and i give you a very good example. Um, you know, Iran is really running out of the water that they have. Uh -huh. And they're going to face drought. So what are they going to do? Are they going to move to another country? Highly doubtful. Are they going to be able to develop water in Iran? I don't know. I don't, again, it's doubtful that they can do that. So that just gives you an example of how resources are getting depleted. Right. And I'm, I'm mentioning Iran because everybody's familiar with the, Iran's geography and, and the resources that they have available to them. But you, so, yes. you, you would include in this category things like overpopulation and climate change. and you know, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Those are part of it. Those are contributors that, that will make us uh, look other places, look at other places to, to move to and keep our existence in, as humans. And to be able to leave. So, so you've you've, in terms of getting into the the work that the specifics of what you do, 
you have, I think, quite modestly said that the reason you have visibility, the, the reason you'd be on our radar, for example, is that you are a project manager. So you're the public face in a lot of cases of these, these projects and that there are many others doing more important work. Uh, well, it's no small feat to be leading these projects. What can you tell us about this lunar crane endeavor? This is your current project. Yeah, can can you is, explain in, in very simple terms what, what you're working on? Yes, absolutely. So we are trying to develop a lunar crane, which will help astronauts to move payloads from one location to another. And this is not just extend to that uh, Lunar crane is effectively a very, it's like a Swiss army knife. So if you change the end effector at the end of this crane, if you put variety of tools, it can do variety of operations, uh. such as excavating, maybe they can deploy structures. Uh, so there, there are many functions to this. But right now, for the initial technology demonstration of this capability, we are looking at doing a demonstration with a lunar lander. And uh, what I'm talking about is, imagine uh, the lunar lander that lands on the surface of the moon. Yes. We will be sort of integrated on top of this lander. And there are payloads that are located on top of this lander. And lunar crane can help and assist in picking those payloads up and moving it down to the surface. Okay, see, even, you see, even in that uh, two minutes, you, you, you say things oh, I that I, I need to, okay. I need explanation. What are payloads? Okay. okay, payloads could be anything that are being used on moon. So payload could be consumables. Payload could be a antenna that they want to put down. Uh, payload could be radars or things that would help in communication while you're up there and you're habitating the moon. Payload could be the habitats where astronauts can live in it. So how do they currently move the payloads from the lander to the lunar surface? Uh, there is no lander on the lunar surface at the current time. We haven't done that. Uh -huh. So, uh, But if you look at in 1960s, you know, they had a... They didn't use a lunar crane, but if you remember, they used to have a vehicle that, that actually was brought up by a lander and the astronauts used it to, to sort of go around the moon with it. Oh. So that to me is a payload. That was your payload. The vehicle was the payload. This is probably a stupid question, but how, how does the lunar crane get, <laughs> get on the moon so that it can pick up the payloads off the, well, off of the lander? It's gonna, yeah. So it's going to be integrated into the lander and when they, get launched to go to the moon, that lander and the uh, lunar crane that is integrated into it will land down on the surface. So, um, so are the, again, are the mechanics of it? I keep thinking of those. Remember that game as a as a kid at the arcade that you put a quarter in, and there's a there's kind of an arm with like right, a exactly, and it's picking exactly. up toys. You know, you try to pick yeah, up toys with it. It's it, yeah, it looks, that, that's a fantastic uh, <laughs> example of what the, this lunar cranes uh, will be able to do. So that's what we're looking at for the first phase. And what is the challenge? What makes this a difficult thing to be building? It's, I, I never said it's difficult. Um, actually, the structure is very simple structure. It's not as complex as, as Ascent Aboard was. But it is something that uh, NASA uh, realizes that's, uh, that would be an important tool to have while you are going to colonize the moon because you need to move things around. 
You can't just drop things in one location and hope that they will move by themselves. So right. they need to have a, a robot or something like Lunar Crane to, to be able to do that for you. You know, it only makes sense that, I mean, a very superficial thought of NASA, uh, given that I, I've never researched it, to, you know, other than when I do these kind of interviews, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you think of it as kind of a monolith and it's not at all a monolith. There's all these different parts, I guess, departments that have to build all the different requirements for, so how many people, for example, are working simply on this lunar crane right now? Uh, so this is our first year, but the average number of people that we'll be working to through the life cycle of this would be probably 20 per year. Uh, and those are a variety of skills with different expertise that can help us build this and get us to, the, to where we want to be. So, yeah, it's a very collaborative effort. And this is by no means a big project. This is a very small project, but... Uh, there are a number of people that will contribute to this. You know, I, so. I, I know I'm um, putting you through the, the ringer to have to speak to us like we're kids for those of us no, who don't, no, don't understand this stuff. But I can hear the right I can <laughs> hear the enthusiasm in your voice. And this is, um, I, I kind of love the story. I mean, you're born in Iran and, and you've said that you always wanted to, to get into space and aeronautics, if, if not to be a pilot yourself. And you have a very vivid memory, uh, Badmack, of, of, of being a kid and being awestruck at the idea of being a pilot, you were with your uncle at Mehrabad Airport. Yeah, Can you yeah. tell that story? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we were going to fetch my mom that was flying back from U.S. from Mehrabad, and my uncle picked my brother and myself, and we went to the airport. And I don't know if you remember, but Mehrabad Airport had a balcony. You could actually go and stand on the balcony and see the plane either land. I would have never off. been there, so I don't remember. Never been there. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so, maybe I flew in as a kid right, once, so but I don't know. Take my yet. words for it. <laughs> but essentially, uh, there was a 747 parked on the side, and I think they were getting it ready for for the trip to some some point of uh, in the world. I guess it was a U.S. But uh, in any case. He, he called us over and he pointed to that and said, hey guys, look at that plane. That plane is a 747 Boeing that has two floors. It's not one single floor. There are two floors to it. That really took me by surprise. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it was just like, my God, a plane can have two floors in it. That yeah. That is amazing. It's a city by itself. So I really, at that point, I was just captured by it. And I said, I really wanted to be a pilot, to be in that environment, to see that multi-floor plane. So it was always my dream to be a pilot. Uh, and I think that was the extension of me getting into NASA. Yes. Although I haven't done much flying, so. Well, your, your, your dad was an engineer, right? Was it was, yes, was yes. it always a given that you were somehow in one way or another going into engineering? And no, at first I never wanted to be an engineer, but at some point, yeah, my parents were very keen on me becoming an engineer. <laughs> and you know how Iranians are and what their expectations are. They are my parents. So yeah, my brother was studying engineering, so. I myself decided to take my path into engineering as well. What do you, um, uh, Bamak? What do you, what do you remember about being a teenager in Iran as the revolution drew closer in the the late nineteen seventies? Yeah, it was a tumultuous time in Iran. Everything was closed. The schools were not really open. 
majority of the kids my age uh, were were going to downtown to sort of see what's going on and go to movies or you know we the the life was very easy going at that time for us even though there was a there was a storm coming through um but it was it was interesting because i i highly doubt many people have gone through a revolution and seeing a change in your country that forces you to leave that itself has a big impact on people so i was fortunate i don't know if i should say i was fortunate or unfortunate to be there in the midst of revolution but it was exciting and we had a lot of fun but my time so you had fun i did i did Uh i mean no school at that time, uh-huh, I, I see. didn't go right, to school. Right. So you know how we are as teenagers. We like right. to spend time with our friends. We like to go here, there. You know, it, it was really, really right. Uh, you're, you're as a 15 year old as this is coming on. You're, you're not thinking about the possibility that there's going to be a regime change and executions. No, and all. You're, no, you're no, just thinking, no, right, no. right, right. So for us, uh, we were at ease and we were just taking as it comes. Uh, by the way, I have to point out that I didn't spend majority of my time going to these demonstrations. I was working at a stable, uh, Shaki's stable, because I was also interested on horseback riding. Oh. And actually, I went far in uh, developing my, my skills in horseback riding. And I had a huge responsibility at that time to take the horses. I was at that time I was fourteen, and I was responsible for taking the horses to the races in Farahabad, and making sure that everything is checked before they would uh, move to to go on to the racetrack. So it was really interesting for me. That was probably the most interesting time of my life. However, I gave a lot of heartache to my parents because during that time, I don't know if you know, but at six o'clock, nobody could walk out. So it, it was difficult. I would leave late at night, would come to the city, and there was nobody on the city. I couldn't find a bus to get home, and there were soldiers all over the place. So well, the horses were also uh, innocently unaware of that there was a revolution yes, happening. Yes, exactly, exactly. You, you guys leave quite dramatically in October of 1979. I say dramatic because when I found out that you left in October of 79, I have to think that that would have been close to when they were closing the borders and the airports, was it not? Yes, yes. Actually, you are right. Two weeks after we left Iran, they sort of closed the borders. But my immigrating to U.S. was very, very easy. And uh, I, I wish that I could sit here and tell you uh, really terrible stories about me going through the mountains and getting uh, having problems with uh, with countries that I go to, but that was not the case for me. You got out in and, time. It sounds. Uh, like. We did. Yeah, yeah. We did, and was very fortunate that my mom uh, was applying for our green card. And when we went to the uh, embassy, we were faced with four different files for each of the family members. So we all received our green card, and that's how we came to. By the way, why US. did you? Why, why was the decision made to leave? <laughs> the decision was always there that they wanted us to move to U.S. even themselves, but the conditions on the ground uh, forced them to make this decision right. more quickly and suddenly, because we really needed to go. They were worried about the school. They were worried about the situation, so they wanted us to get out as soon as possible. You know, when you when you come to America, you've um, I really think you have an interesting take on this. You've told me 
you've told me how hard it was to be in high school in Massachusetts at the time of the uh, hostage crisis and the post-revolutionary tension between Iran and the United States when you first arrived. But you've also said that it was the actions of some people around you that made you believe in America forever. Uh, let's take that one part at a time, if you will, to explain to folks. First, sure. first of all, the first part, how hard did it get? Would would you get made fun of? Would you be challenged to fights? What, what was happening well, as a high school kid who arrives from Iran in the middle of a hostage crisis and revolution? Yeah, it, it was difficult and was very hostile. Not everybody was like that. I, I want to clarify that. But there were situations that I, I was in where I was assaulted or or was told to get out or go away. So there were there were some difficult situations. But I'd like to put those aside because I had a very good support system. I was really amazed by this because the school that I went to with my brother, we had teachers that really cared about our safety and really cared about the culture that we came from. They were interested to find out about you. So not only they were the support system for us, but the friends that we made didn't extend just to the friendship that we had with them, but their family was very interested on knowing where we came from and what the situation is in Iran. And the more you talked about it, the more they understood that it's not your fault. You know, this is not something that uh, you caused. You're just a product of this situation and you're trying to get away from that. So I lived in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and I had a great support system. These people were kind, nice. They would check up on us and they would make sure that we would be safe and we are safe. Mm -hmm. And even my teachers would put extra time out of their day to go through the courses where we had difficulties in because our English, we thought our English is very good, but when we came here, (laughs) uh, we faced the reality that really, you really need to refine your English and learn more. And because of that, some of the courses were very difficult. And those teachers stood after school on their own time to to help us go through it. So it's very hardening. I, it's a very hardening yeah. thing to hear, especially because yeah. so many stories are 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 so much more negative. What about the way you felt? Did you were you scared? Did you feel? Was it apparent to you that you're different from everybody else, or or, or yeah, did the process I of mean, assimilation happen naturally for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I felt that maybe the first year. But I have to tell you, within all the countries in the world, U.S. is the only country that I know of that you can assimilate really quickly. And once you assimilate in it, it's you you are part of it. Uh, you can't be separated from it. Uh, I know in Europe there is some difficulties in assimilation into the population, even though if you become a citizen, you're not necessarily considered one of them. In U.S., we are considered one of them. I, and I don't know about Canada as well, but uh, but here uh, assimilation is really easy, and uh, that that is one thing that I really love about U.S. This was true in the past. I think the political environment is changing a little bit. Let and, me let me get to that. I did, uh, by yeah. the way, uh, by the way, I think Canada is generally considered a good place for immigrants, although good, we have good. our issues as well, of course. But uh, t- I want to just ask you, but there's a story um, that I thought was quite beautiful. In the first days of, of school, uh, in your high school, there's a history class, and you didn't you didn't want anybody to know you were Iranian. Your yeah. teacher actually calls you out, but it's, it, it right. turns out more beautiful than it sounds. Go, go ahead and tell that story. Yes, yes. So 
this was the first day of our school, and I just wanted to set the stage here. Prior to that, we had a lot of discussion with the principal uh, because of the uh, time, because of the hostage crisis, we asked that not to be uh, identified as Iranians. And so they were trying to sort of consider our safety. And I think he did. Uh, uh, but the first class that we had with my brother was a history class. So we walked into the class and suddenly uh, my history teacher, who became one of the most advocate for us, very, she was very supportive of everything that we did, uh, sort of said to the students, let's make a circle. We have new students in our class, and these guys are from Iran, and you know the situation of Iran. And so before going into discussions, she made sure to point out that, you know, the situation in Iran is not of any of their results. It's not caused by them so we need to be respectful and we need to understand where they're coming from and they have the same aspirations and and the same feelings as you guys do so let's keep this clean and and, and be respective and that was my first experience in a class so the kids started asking different questions uh, about iran about us so it was a it was a good starting point i thought uh uh, so I love you know. that story. I, I love that story. You, you you know you have said and you just intimated, uh, you just re- referenced it there a second ago. You, you've told me that immigration is close to your heart. Um, you talk about just now how uh, coming to a country that was very welcoming has uh, made you believe in America. But you've also said that has changed now, and you're afraid that you're going in the wrong direction in the United States. Can you talk about how you worry about America headed in the wrong direction when it comes to immigration? Yeah, I think uh, when I came to U.S., immigration was was considered a positive thing. The view from America was that the immigrants can contribute a lot to, to the society of uh, United States. Unfortunately, because of the political atmosphere that we had for the past four years and the fear-mongering that was spewed out, this philosophy has changed. So I don't think United States really values immigrants as they did when I moved here. And immigration is important to me because I'm an immigrant and I know how I contributed to this society because they gave me that opportunity to do so. And I think the environment is ripe for immigrants to come to U.S. and contribute just as much as me and other Iranians here uh, who who are successful and are working towards developing things that will help all, all the society as a whole. So my view has changed, and I'm really dissatisfied with the way that this this is going. I'm just hoping that there, there would be a point that these views will turn around and we really think positively about immigration. I think for a good example of it is, I just heard Canada really values immigration and they want immigrants to, to move to Canada. Yes. I just wish that U.S. had the same attitude towards the immigration as as countries like Canada do. Well, again, no population is a monolith. We have uh, anti-immigration folks in Canada as well, and I'm sure you, I know you have a lot of pro-immigration folks in, in, in the United States, so yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a pendulum that swings, and I, I hear you on the last four years. Speaking of which, I mean, your parents 
returned to Iran not long after you moved uh, to to uh, the United States back in the late seventies, early eighties. And as I understand it, they've never wanted to come and live in the West. Why? Let me set this stage up on this sure. one. <laughs> so uh, my parents wanted to move to U.S., but I think because of the situation when my dad and my mom moved here with us, my dad found himself not having too many friends. He didn't speak the language really well. So he was very isolated, I think. And he wanted, his familiarity was the culture of Iran. And also because of the Iran-Iraq war, he was very concerned about the, the house and his life back in Iran. So they moved back to take care of that. They did come to US after that to visit. But since all this has occurred, and they're going up on age, they are not really interested on coming to U.S. However, we meet each other once a year, and we were able to to socialize and see each other, which is great for us. Have you had any temptation to go back to Iran and live there? Uh, I do. I really love to go back. The last time I was there was 2008, which I had a blast. But I don't think uh, it's a right time for me to to go to Iran. Because essentially, if something happens, it's not just you. It extends into the family and gets them involved. Is working at at NASA a liability of sorts? I I don't know. I don't know. But Uh who knows? Would you ever ever want to live in Iran again? No, I, I don't think I can live in Iran because it's funny you ask that. You know, even the few times that I've returned back to Iran, I always felt out of place. I don't know why. I was really, it, it's just strange the, the way I feel when I go back to Iran. No, I don't think I would live there. Yeah, Not at all. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, this, you have such a success story of someone who came here and, and, has reached the pinnacle of the aeronautics world, NASA. I know you applied several times after university before you got this gig at NASA. And you were, had been working as an engineer in Massachusetts. When you first started at NASA, what I suppose what surprised you most? What were your impressions of what was it going to be? What it was going to be like, and and how was it different? That's a great question. I came from a army environment where it's very hierarchical. Okay. In NASA, they value your opinion. You have a voice. You you will be able to express your opinion, and that opinion, if it's if it's good, will be implemented. Unlike Army, Army is it was very hierarchical at the time that I worked with them. So it was their way or highway. It was not a really collaborative environment. It was difficult working for Army. And I don't have too many good memories about it. But Army was a vehicle for me to get into NASA because, uh, you know, I tried to apply to NASA while I was working for Army. I was rejected once by Marshall Space Flight Center. But, you know, because that base that I was working was going through a closure under base realignment and closure, uh, we were able to... Uh, be picked by there was a group of 16 of us that were moved to NASA Langley there was an army group there that was working on rotorcraft uh, although when I came to NASA Langley at that time under army I always worked on NASA projects but 
essentially put me in an environment that I could show what my capabilities are, what I can do for them, and how I can contribute. And that essentially pushed me, was able to uh, be hired by them. What do you What do you think the future of space travel is? Are you Are you optimistic? Do you, Do you see folks like Elon Musk and SpaceX as a challenge to the future of NASA, or a healthy competition, or where Where are we at? No, I don't think he's a challenge to to NASA. I think he's he's contributing to NASA. What I worry about is the skill set uh, or the skills that we use by giving these contracts to private industry. However, government is not an efficient organization. There are bureaucracy involved. So that makes it sort of inefficient. But these private industries are much more efficient to to get where the NASA's goal is, where the goal is to go to the moon. Uh, the goal is to go to the Mars. And we the budget that is required for that uh, is not enough for NASA by itself to do it. So when you have private industries that are much more efficient on, on uh, accounting for their money and how they're spending it, how they're sort of implementing programs and projects and how they're executing it, they are more successful in it than we are. Uh, so no, I don't think they are they are competing with us. They are helping us. But again, I emphasize the skills that we lose can affect NASA in the near future. But if the if the space race, as it was called, reached its zenith in terms of uh, enthusiasm of people around the world in terms of funding, in terms of the dream of of space that uh, captured the imagination of populations in the 1960s uh, and then sort of fell apart to a certain extent along with the Cold War. Do you see that enthusiasm returning? Yeah, I, I, I think th- there is a huge interest on space because going to space will create opportunities for for in private industry in specific to develop their technologies to make money on that technology so yeah the enthusiasm is there uh, i think everybody is very interested to see if we can ever get to mars because mars really replicates earth it would be interesting to see how we can colonize mars i mean right now that that is the biggest dream for for nasa and all the private industries such as elon musk so you know we just have to wait and see where this will take us but to a certain extent it depends on public funding and public funding depends on depends on the 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 population being you know enthusiastic enough to to want their money spent on this right exactly that's why we the funding is not there for nasa to do it by itself so it needs partners Uh, during 60s, well, when you brought that up, 60s, the funding that went to NASA at that time was, uh, I think, $2 billion, which if you convert it to dollar at this time is around $25 billion. And you only wanted to get to the moon. There was no other programs. Everything, all the energy, all the dollars, all the effort went into that. Now, NASA is involved in many projects, like, for example, James Webb Telescope is costed around $9 billion. That, uh, when your budget is $24 billion a year, and $9 billion going to one project, and we have few of these, 
it really drains the budget for exploration. So you can do what you did in 60s because your focus is not on one thing. Your focus right. is on variety of things. So that is why it is wise to have private industry involved to get us there. Uh, this is just a reality at this point. It's so very good to talk to you. I very, I, I, I've enjoyed this, and I enjoy your insights. A final question, if you will. What? Yes. What would be your? I mean, thinking about you back at Mehrabad Airport. <laughs> what What would be your advice to a kid watching flights take off and dreaming of getting into aeronautics and working at NASA one day? Yeah, don't ever give up on your dream. Just work hard and and have that focus that you want to get there, and you will get there. I remember my father always used to say. You have to shoot for, your dream should be very high. You have to shoot for that. That will make you get close to it. You might not get to it, but you get close to it. So I, I advise everybody that if you have a dream, follow it. I know there's challenges, difficulties in the, in, in the way to get there. But if you focus on that, all those challenges can be defeated and you, you, can, you can get there. Marmak Talagani, I thank you for this today. Merci. Oh, thank you, Gian. I appreciate your time, and it was a pleasure for talking with you about this. To be continued. To be continued. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Barmak Talagani is a NASA project manager who develops technologies that can aid in the future of space exploration. He currently leads the development of a lunar crane that can assist astronauts in offloading payloads from the lander to lunar surface. Barmak Talagani joined me from the home of the NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. This is full time for this special themed edition of Rook Today. For all things Rook and the contemporary history of Iran and more, go to our website, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together, talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Savvy Roham, Ponta the Artist, the fabulous Keon, Aghai Mehrdad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any of our platforms. If you've not done so already, you can become a patron or sponsor of Rook at rookmedia.com. We're back to regular editions of Rook next week and new editions of the Contemporary History of Iran every Thursday. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. In the meantime, as ever, Mizun Bashin.